I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Erioki. Join me and my friends as we explore the darker side of the Sooner State. I'm Marnie Vinge, and this is Irioki. I'm here tonight with a returning guest that is pulling my chestnuts out of the fire tonight because this is Thursday night, April 25th. You guys will be hearing this on Friday morning, April 26th, which is my guest's birthday. And it's my mom, Larissa Vinge. <laughs> so welcome back. Thank you for having me back, Marnie. What a nice birthday celebration. Yeah, what a nice birthday celebration for your daughter to be like, you have to do this. <laughs> You have to help me. I have no one scheduled this week. Well, we've we've talked about doing this particular story because it's it's connected to our family. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to talk about the Karen Silkwood, who was the activist that brought the Karen Silkwood. The Karen Sil- Silkwood. <laughs> she was an activist who brought health and safety issues to the public eye against Kermagee Corporation. They owned Cimarron um, Fuel. Let's see. Let's see. I think it's it. Cimarron Fuel Plant. Cimarron Crest- Fuel Fabrication Site. Okay. At Crescent, Oklahoma. Yes. And she had negative information against the company. And at the time that she was bringing that to light with a reporter, she would was killed in a car accident that has some mysterious circumstances surrounding it. Yes. So you were a little bit hesitant, not hesitant to talk about this because I think that you're enjoying this. I hope you are. But um, I would make you do it even if you're not. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you were a little bit nervous about talking tonight because of the connection that we have to Kermagee. Well, yes, my husband, Lars, Marnie's dad, he worked for Kermagee forever. Forever. And so it was a case that was really hard for him to, not hard for him to deal with, but it was hard for him to see the company being portrayed the way it was and I by think a that, lot of the media. And I think that that speaks more to his character than anything, because I think that were he a shady individual he'd be like oh yeah this definitely (laughs) happened but i think that he did not want to think that he could be associated with some with an entity that might do this like i don't think he wanted to even think entertain that idea that that really would happen that or he thought this is so far-fetched that you know you know yes and uh, for those who aren't familiar with the case, Karen Silkwood worked at Kermagee's Plutonium Fuels production plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. And she was a member of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. She was the first woman to hold a position on the bargaining committee. Mm-hmm. And, and she, she was she was only 28 years old when she died. Yes. And before we get too far into anything about her, I wanted to say a little bit about Kermagee. I wanted to do a little bit of the history of um, that company because some of the people that listen to this podcast are youngins and they don't know about Kermagee. 
Yes, and I I wasn't going to go into it. I was just going to say, and she was killed under mysterious circumstances. I think yeah. we we might have already covered yeah. that. But anyway, um, so there so, therein lies the the problem. Did they do it or did they not? <laughs> yeah. So interestingly enough, when you search for Kermagee on Google, one of the first things that pops up when you enter that in the search bar is the suggested thing for you to also search for is, is Silkwood a true story referring to the movie about Karen Silkwood? Okay. So Kermagee was founded in 1929. Um, it's a company that was involved in oil exploration, production of crude oil, natural gas, perchlorate, I think is how you say it. And uranium mining and milling in several countries. Um, the country was founded by Robert S. Kerr, which there is a street downtown called Robert S. Kerr, and that's the street on which Kermagee used to be, correct? Yes. Okay. There's also a Dean McGee. Yes. Is there a McGee, Dean McGee Street? Dean McGee Avenue. Oh, really? Okay. And isn't that the iBank? Yes. Dean, Dean McGee? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I Institute. So it was founded by, this is actually, it was founded by Robert S. Kerr and James L. Anderson. And at the time... It was originally called the Anderson and Kerr Drilling Company. But then in um, 1946, Dean McGee, a former chief geologist for Phillips Petroleum, joined them and the name was changed to Kerr McGee. So during the lifetime of this company, they acquired several other companies, which gave them more onshore assets and assets in foreign areas. And um, on November 21st, 2005, the chemical division of the company based in OKC was sold, thereby making OKC home to the administrative operations, which is where my dad worked. He worked downtown in the Kermagee building doing Kermagee stuff. <laughs> yes, yes, much to Marnie's surprise, he actually worked in an office building and had a desk. But when she was a little girl, she told everybody he worked at the Kermagee station that was not too far from our house. <laughs> yes, there used to be Kermagee gas stations, and I totally thought, I thought that's where he worked because I saw the sign. I thought I was pretty sharp to put that together. Oh, I think you were, too. <laughs> I thought it was cute. <laughs> um, so... On June 23, 2006, Anadarko Petroleum Corporation purchased Kermagee in an all-cash transaction for $16.5 billion plus Kermagee's debt of $2.6 billion. That's a lot of cash. It is. That is a lot of cash. Um, so anyway, back to Karen Silkwood. I have a little bit about her background. Do you have anything about her background that you want to say? Um, or did you get anything about her background? I'll let, I'll let you... Okay. I might throw something in. Okay. She was born in Longview, Texas to Merle and... Merle? Was her was her mother's name Merle? For some reason, that's like not ringing right to me. Okay. And William Silkwood. If anybody knows that the true name of her mother, please let me know. I may have that wrong. Um, she grew up in Nederland, Texas, and she had two sisters, Linda and Rosemary. Um, she went to college at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, and she married William Meadows, who worked the oil pipeline, and they had three children together. Um, but he kind of liked to spend all that good money that he was making on the oil pipeline, and they ended up going bankrupt. And he was also having an affair with someone else. And so she was like, okay, 
no more of this. And she left him in 1972 and headed for Oklahoma City. And that's when she got a job at the Kermagee Cimarron Fuel Fabrication Site near Crescent. Um, and while she was working there, when she very first started there, there was um, a strike going on. And she kind of joined in on this strike that was going on. And during that time, she got involved with the Chemical and Atomic Workers Union. And after she was part of that strike, they actually elected her to the union's bargaining committees. And she was the first woman in Kermagee history to achieve that position, which is kind of cool, barring all the other elements of things she may or may not have done. That's kind of a cool thing. She was definitely, um, she was an activist Mm -hmm. and she obviously wanted to be involved in the union making making it better for the employee so yeah so as part of this position she was supposed to investigate health and safety issues and she was she and during that time when she was in investigating that or supposed to be investigating that she came up with several issues that she believed were violations including exposure of the workers to contamination faulty respiratory equipment and improper storage of samples and so the oil chemical and atomic workers union said that Kermagee has man- had manufactured faulty fuel rods falsified product inspection records and risked employee safety and a litigation was threatened against Kermagee so in the summer of 1974 um, she testified to the AEC the atomic energy commission that she was contaminated at the plant saying that safety standards had slipped because of a production speed up. So like how many times have you heard that? Like we need to make more. So we're going to do it less safely. But so on November 5th, 1974, um, she performed a self check for contamination and found that her body had 400 times the legal limit for plutonium contamination. And at the plant, she was decontaminated, and then she was sent home with a testing kit, a urine and feces testing kit, for further analysis. And although there was plutonium in the... the she she had to wear gloves because she handled the plutonium pellets, correct? Um, she was... I believe that she was... She polished the plutonium rods that held the pellets, okay. I believe, is what okay. she was doing. But. So she would wear gloves to mm-hmm. do that. And whenever they um, checked out her gloves, this is kind of an interesting part of it. Um, The quote from the article I looked at said, although there was plutonium on the inner portions of the gloves, which she had been using, the gloves did not have any holes. This suggests the contamination had come not from inside the glove box, but from some other source. So that's kind of like if you pulled, like it makes me think of working at the funeral home and like getting the gloves out of the glove box before touching anything. And if you had touched something that was contaminated before you grabbed the gloves, that's really the only way that there would be anything inside of them, especially if there are no holes in the gloves. So, yes. Yeah. So that's an interesting, interesting little fact there. Um, The next morning she went to a union negotiation meeting And she, again, at that meeting, tested positive for plutonium, although she had only been on paperwork duties that morning. Which I found that kind of interesting. Because it makes you think, like, where is it coming from? And I have a theory on that. We'll get there. 
Um, so November 7th, she was found to be contaminated as she entered the plant. This was a different day. And um, she even expelled contaminated air from her lungs. And um, a health physics team went home with her to her apartment and found traces of the substance in her bathroom and refrigerator. So, how and did, other places in the kitchen also. Yeah. So, you want to go ahead and talk about how she claims that ended up there? Um, well, they were, they were confused as to how it could have traveled to the kitchen, that sort of thing. And anyway, supposedly when she was doing the urine, she had collected the urine specimen, she spilled the specimen. And mom has her doubts about this. Well, well, that was not the part that really led me to be doubtful. Then supposedly she left the bathroom, went to the kitchen. She was going to make a bologna sandwich to take for her lunch. She picked up the package of bologna meat and took it into the bathroom and sat it on the toilet seat cover. And that just <laughs> all seemed... <laughs> That seemed a little, I, I mean, mm. I don't know about you, but I have never, I mean, I've done some pretty disgusting things in my life, but I have never put lunch meat on, on a, a surface in a bathroom period. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, it, I guess to it, me, it didn't sound like a very feasible situation. Right. Like who it's, would do that? It seemed so disgusting. You know, this is. Come on, you know, I don't know what happened here. I'm not saying one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But that but, seems a very, a very fishy kind of story yeah. to concoct. Yeah. yeah. That that did not ring quite true to me either. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, continue. I mean, I, my comments belong later. Oh, okay. In the situation. Um, so... Kermagee claimed that she contaminated herself to make the company look bad. Um, and there is a book called The Killing of Karen Silkwood by Richard L. Rashke, or Roshke. And um, he wrote that the soluble type of plutonium found in Silkwood's body came from a production area which she had not accessed for four months. The pellets had since been stored in the vault of the facility. Which I thought was very interesting. I thought that was very interesting too. That was that was a, you know, one of those kind of things that makes you say, "Hmm, yeah." And I mean, I think that this is a case where, even though I feel like I have a personal tie to it, it it sort of feels like. Because of Lars, I'd like to just say, no way, she did everything. Mm -hmm. You know, Kermagee yeah. did nothing. But I think this is maybe a case of a combination of things. Yeah, I think, I think so too. I think maybe the plant was actually lax. Yeah, I think yeah. they weren't being as careful as they should be. Well, like and one I of can... the things that it says is that the security was so lax that people could take plutonium from the facility which kind of speaks to like both sides of it that yes they were being lax but yes she could have taken it herself and they would not have known right and and i mean 
the Karen Silkwood story aside, you know, there's a part of it that if, if you read enough of the different stories, they don't think that some people don't think that Kerr McGee had anything to do with it, that it was no one from the plant, it was no connection, that it was the government because so much plutonium was disappearing. And, I mean, we're talking international intrigue here. I totally thought you were going to say that no one from the planet had anything to do with it. So, <laughs> plant. <laughs> there are probably people out there, though, that might argue for what I just proposed. Hey, I'm not saying it was aliens, but, but it, it was, was aliens. aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to had to throw, throw a little that. Mulder in there. Yeah, that's okay. We we support the X Files in this household. I've got that poster right there. Um, so her now. Let's move on to her death. So um, uh, one one other thing about the contamination. Mm. Uh, I I read in more than one source that. The kind of contamination that they were talking about, that it had to be ingested. Yes. I've got some stuff about that here in just a minute. Okay. Okay. Just, um, so she said she had assembled papers documenting her claims against Kermagee and she said that she was going to go public and contacted a New York times reporter named David Bumham, Bumham or Bumham. I don't know exactly how you would say that, but she contacted this journalist from the New York Times. And I thought that it was kind of like, if you really had this kind of information, would you make a big deal of like, hey, giant billion dollar corporation, I'm about to whistleblow you guys and I'm going to tell you about it and rub your nose in it before I do it. If you really had, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, that's a good point. I like, because if she, if she really, I mean, if it was me and I was in this position where I was working for this like billion dollar oil company, a really powerful oil company, and I was just like a worker at one of their plants and I realized, hey, they're cutting some corners and people are getting hurt and I have the potential to change the situation or um, make some waves or whatever. I'm not going to be going and posting on Facebook. Hey, Kerr McGee, like <laughs> this the, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. <laughs> yeah, kind of I'm, stuff. About, I'm about to get y'all in big <laughs> trouble. Like I'm not going to be doing that. I'm going to be as I wouldn't even, I don't even know if I would go to a reporter. I'm, like I would go to the appropriate official that I would need to go to. And then I'd be like, can you take me into the witness protection program? Well, I think at that point, hadn't she already gone to the atomic energy commission? She had, she had. Um, and I'm thinking under the circumstances, I think everything I'd be doing, I would have been doing it in secrecy. I I think that's a good point. It Mm -hmm. maybe, I mean, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have contacted a reporter, but I think I would have, it would have been after it was in the newspaper yeah. that everybody would yeah. be hearing and about it. And it would have been after I had, like, gone off to live in Kenton. <laughs> and I was calling from a, like, unlisted number and everything. Like, you know, I watched too many X-Files reruns. That, you know, witness protection, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this just, I, like, I just would not do that. I'm, I'm not trying to be a hero. I don't know whether they do that for all the whistleblowers. Yeah, I don't know either. That's kind of kind of a scary scary position to be in. So, um, November thirteenth, nineteen seventy four, she was at a meeting with some of the other people. Um, I think from the union um, at the Hub Cafe in Crescent, which was very close to the plant. 
And another person who was at the meeting did testify that she had a binder and a packet of documents with her. Um, something that I th- think is really weird about this is that her family is, they, they assert that, yes, she had these documents with her, but I don't understand how they would know that. I, I thought that was curious too, because I'm not saying that somebody didn't steal the documents out right, of her Right, that very well could have car, happened, but I thought it was weird that they would have how did anybody known. even know that she, besides yeah, she this person at the meeting? They saw them at the meeting. They didn't yeah. see them in the car. She was alone. You know, but I guess I mean, they could have of... seen her leave with them. And I think her family are the ones that asserted they were in the seat next to her. Yes, I did. I did see that phrase in the seat. So next this person to her, could so. have just seen her leave with them. And like, if she really had them, chances are that's probably where she would put them is in the seat next to her. But, um, but anyway, so she left this meeting and she got in the car and headed to Oklahoma City. She was meeting with the reporter that I mentioned and a man named Steve Wadka, I think is how you say his last name. There's lots of names in this one that I'm just like, ah, I hope I'm pronouncing them uh, right. He, he was a national union. Okay. Yeah, he was an official in her yeah. union's national mm-hmm. office. Um, and so that was the last time that anybody saw her alive was w- walking out of that cafe, getting in her car and leaving. Yeah. It wasn't very long after she left there. I mean, it happened really quickly after that. The, yeah. The car accident. Uh, later in the evening, she was found in her car, which had run off the road and struck a culvert on the east side of State Highway 74, 0.11 miles south of the intersection with West Industrial Road. So I guess you can, like, is that still, I don't know exactly where that is, but I can't, I can't, like, bring that know. to mind. But, I mean, I know that Crescent is kind of close to Guthrie, isn't it? Yes. Kind of up in that area. Okay. Yes. Um, so, when they looked in her car and they found her body and everything, they didn't find any documents. No. Yeah. No. The I mean, supposedly, the, the, those supposed documents and materials that she was taking to show to the reporter... And the union official. Were gone. Or weren't there. Right. They. I don't think they've ever found them any, no. at any time. No. So. Um, which kind of goes into like the whole thing of like, did she really have anything? Like if they weren't actually there, like, but okay. So before I put my spin on it, I'll let you guys make up your own minds because there's some evidence that's kind of interesting. Um, No documents were found. She was pronounced dead at the scene. The trooper that attended the scene remembers that he found quaaludes or one quaalude and um, in the car as well as cannabis. And for those of you that don't know, that's marijuana. (laughs) Well, supposedly the uh, um, coroner's report showed that she had... She had Uh, 0.35 milligrams of quaaludes per 100 milliliters of blood at the time of her death, which was twice the amount needed to make a person suitably drowsy to fall asleep. And she also had alcohol in her bloodstream. Okay. Yeah. So not not making a judgment or anything. I'm just just saying saying that that it is possible she could have fallen asleep and run off the road. Um, but some people theorize that she was rammed from behind on purpose because there were skid marks from her car um, that somehow in the forensic investigation of them, they kind of indicate that there is a possibility 
that she was hit and pushed one way and then tried to swerve to like get herself back on the road. Um, and investigators also noted damage on the rear of her vehicle. And according to her friends and family, like her vehicle, which I think was a 90, 1973 or 74 Honda Civic, I'm pretty sure. Um, it, according to them, it had never been in an accident. Um, she had never gotten any kind of damage on it whatsoever. There weren't any reports that contradicted that information. No insurance claims. Right. There was nothing that to make it seem that maybe they were not being forthcoming with any information. Um, and there was paint that was found. So I know this from forensics. This is kind of cool. Um, so when a car accident happens or, um, a car hits a stationary object or anything like that, the paint on the car can come off onto, it can transfer onto whatever it hit. And there's actually a database that they can run that paint through and find out what kind of car it came from. Or at least narrow it down to whatever cars were using that paint in whatever years. So, which makes it a little bit easier in situations like this to identify that. But I doubt that they were using anything of that kind at the time that this happened. This was the 70s. Right. So, yeah, yeah, any kind of computer database. have come... A long way. So far. Yes. So far in 30 or 40 years. Yeah. So um, it's really interesting to me to think about that. Like I think about all of the cases from so long ago that were not solved that could have been solved with forensics, just like the Jack the Ripper thing. Mm -hmm. Like didn't they recently think that they're pretty sure who he was? Yes. Yeah. And uh, there are numerous cold cases being served Mm -hmm. uh, being solved today and i'm sure you know you and all of your listeners everybody's aware of you know this or that case that the golden state killer exactly yeah yeah which yeah you know so it's which if you've murdered anybody if you've murdered anybody be careful because one of your relatives might sign up for 23 and me and get you caught (laughs) but I'm just kidding. We have no. Who murders. would have thought? There are no murderers in this audience. <laughs> there are no murderers. Um. So, uh, we went over that her relatives said that they swore she had the documents, but I was really confused about that because I don't know how they would know that unless she had been with them prior to going to the meeting. But I assumed she was at her part apartment with Cher and Kurt Russell. Which are the people who played her boyfriend and her roommate in the Silkwood movie. Um, Which they got nominated. Cher and Meryl Streep got nominated for Academy Awards for that. Um, I love Meryl Streep. Just saying. She was in Sophie's Choice, y'all. If you haven't read Sophie's Choice, you should read it. And cry a lot. It's really good. Um, So... The atomic inner is it the atomic energy commission? Yes. And the medical examiner sent her organs to uh, Los Alamos, which is like the premier. That's like where you want your organs to go. If somebody's checking them for plutonium, I guess is like, <laughs> yes. that's what it boils down to. <laughs> so they sent them to Los Alamos and um, the majority of the contamination this is what we were talking about earlier. It was found in her lungs, but the most of it, was in her GI tract, which yes. means she had to have ingested it. Which, you know what I think it is? I think she had that bologna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I 
that she laid on the toilet seat or on the toilet lid or wherever she, whatever place she laid it on. No, not really. I think I, okay. So we'll keep going and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay. Um, so an investigation ended up being made into the plant security because it was supposedly so lax and NPR reported at the time that 20 to 30 kilos of plutonium had been misplaced. Just where are they? I'm telling you, they'd been <laughs> sold to someone in the Middle East for... But but it's it's very weird. Like, I, I mean, I don't know how much plutonium you need to, like, do whatever it is you do with plutonium. But you can 20 build th- a nuclear weapon with it. Okay. But 20 to 30 kilos seems like a lot, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know how much you I need to make a nuclear bomb. You know, like it, sitting in front of me, how much that I, would be. I don't be. know how much that I, would be. I don't have any idea, I don't, but it sounds know. like a yeah. lot of, it sounds like way too much to just be, uh, where is that? Yeah. And it yeah. sounds like way too much for a person to have consumed to contaminate themselves and not die. But, um, so Kermagee closed its nuclear, nuclear, I almost said, I almost did a George W. Bush thing and said nuclear, (laughs) (laughs) uh, nuclear, um, let's see, they, Kermagee closed its nuclear fuel plants in 1975, which was like the year right after this. Um, there wasn't any kind of link that was made like saying, oh, we're going to close them because of this. But I think that that probably had a lot to do with it. But they had gotten in trouble you know, with the yeah. federal government. And so, I mean, they were being looked at. Right. Um, so <clears throat> her father and children filed a lawsuit against Kermagee for negligence. And um, they ended up settling out of court for $1.38 million, but accepted no liability. Um, and something that I thought was very smart, the family, when they brought that, it was... It was negligent um, safety precautions. It was it was saying that the negligence was in not having adequate protection in place to keep her from being contaminated. They mm-hmm. did not bring a wrongful death suit, and I think that's why they got so far with it. I think it was really smart. Oh yes, and that makes sense. They brought the first the first trial. You know, as we all know, that can go on for a long time. And the first trial ended in 1979. And the jury awarded the Silkwood estate $10.5 million. Damn. But the, I believe it was just, I think it was the following year, at any rate, however long it took it to get there, that decision was reversed by the Federal Court of Appeals in Denver. And all they awarded the family was $5,000, and that was for the damage that was done because of the searching of her apartment. Okay. So. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. But then, in 1986, the case was headed back for retrial, and that was when they settled out of court with Kermagee for $1.3 million, mm-hmm. with Kermagee not, not admitting fault. Okay. So I always, I'm always very suspicious when people settle out of court. (laughs) Like I always think that Johnetta and I have this thing. We always talk about like if anything, any kind of scandal is going on in the news and somebody settles out of court, we're like, he did it. She did it. I know they did it because it just seems like, but I, I also get it too. If you're a 
if you have the money to just like make that stop instead of like going through the process of like the publication of this, um, this bad press or whatever, like if you're, if you're a hundred billion dollar corporation and you can pay $1.38 million to make this go away instead of 10 and a half, instead of 10 and a half. And also instead of this going on and being in the news for however long, I mean, I can understand why you might want to do that. Instead of like going, no, we're going to fight this because we're right. I, I mean, I can see, I can see what you and Johnette are saying, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it necessarily, just because someone settles out of court, I don't think that necessarily makes them guilty. Right, right. I think in some cases it's a pure matter of practicality. And, yeah. And for some people, obviously, obviously not in this case, we're not talking that, but I mean, when it comes down to individuals, Maybe it isn't worth it to lose everything financially, give up your house, you know, whatever. But then there are people, then there are people like, what was his last name? Michael, the staircase. I can't think of his last name. I can see his face. Gosh, I can't think of it either. How could I not? Hang on. I'm going to look it up because I need to know his last name because it's part of it. Um, Why? What was, what was... Peterson. Yes, Michael, Michael Peterson. Peterson. Okay, so uh, y'all have probably watched The Staircase. My mom and I watched that together, and we were mainly, like, screaming at the television the whole time and just, like, what is wrong with this nation and this man and everything. Um, so, like, in his case, with the Alford plea, I just, I remember thinking, like, are you stupid like, why would you not just take this, have this be over and go on with your life? Like, you have lost so much of your life tied up in this. Your money is gone. And he was in prison. He was in prison for what, yeah. like eight years? Something like eight, yeah. ten years maybe? Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, like, if that was me, I would be like, yes, I am guilty or whatever you want me to be. Like, if if that means he- I can be with my family and be free you he know. didn't have to say the actual words that he was right. guilty. He, didn't he have only to say, had yeah. to say that I plead, uh, I take the Alfred, Alfred plea, plea or yeah. whatever. And I mean, of course, that was a plea of guilty under these circumstances. But you know, I mean, I think it. I think it could reach a point. I think so too. And wasn't his family like they were just like, no, just take it like yeah this is this has gone on too long this has ruined so much of our life our collective lives that we just want you to be done with this and um yeah that guy was a piece of work well anyway that's another story mom has her (laughs) theories about him (laughs) Uh, you know for you to say that everybody who settles out of court is guilty is sort of like me saying he's obviously guilty because he's so unlikable you know yeah, she <laughs> there's, was just like, there's she at least that much him. there is just that much reasoning in that kind of line of thought <laughs> yeah yeah so that's a good that's a really good documentary if you guys have not seen that one and another one that i highly 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 recommend that you have not seen I have seen, but I told you about it because I'm awful and I had to tell someone because I was just like bursting with excitement after I watched it was the jinx. What she's trying to say is, you know, it was kind of like she told me how the book ended. Yeah. <laughs> Not a book. I it was it. it was it was a true documentary, true story documented 
I totally on Netflix. It. Or no, at, no, HBO Go. HBO Go. Okay. If you've got HBO Go and you've got like six hours that you're not doing anything, stream the Jinx, and you will not be you will not be disappointed. It's the most satisfying ending of any true crime documentary I've ever seen in my life. However, we digress. We do digress, but that's okay. That's it's about digressing. So, um, anyway, there was a 1983 film. Um, Silkwood, which was written by Nora Ephron and Alice Arlen, and it was directed by Mike Nichols, starring Meryl Streep and Cher and Kurt Russell, correct? I think Kurt Russell played the... I may be making that uh, Karen Silkwood's boyfriend. Which, by the way, I love Kurt Russell. Oh. Like, okay, I knew that I was getting older when I watched the the Christmas Chronicles, and I was like, he is so attractive as Santa Claus. (laughs) And I was like... (laughs) And I was like, that is, I am disgusted by myself right now. <laughs> so that was, if you haven't seen the Christmas Chronicles and you love Tombstone, go watch it. Do yourself a favor. Watch the Christmas Chronicles. It's so good. It's also really cute. It's a cute movie. But, um, so they were in that movie and the movie got nominated for like all these awards. Cher got nominated for a couple of different awards. Meryl Streep got nominated for, um, an Academy Award. I think the guy who wrote, who directed it got nominated and i think the writers got nominated too like it was a big people were very moved by this or the academy was very moved by this or they did a really good campaign for this movie for the academy is probably what i'm trying to say but um one of the things that we talked about before we started the podcast that was interesting is that even her family is divided about why she did what she did or whether or not she was really telling the truth or whatever what was it that um she had one one child that said this one child that said that yeah you know the the typical thing that you would expect is you know your family a lot of times they're gonna believe no matter what Mm -hmm. they can't believe that you've done anything wrong and they're gonna believe only the best and and that's understandable and then you know yet i read some you know where some family members kind of question what she was really about and that it wasn't all as good as it seemed and you know that kind of thing but you know that's that's kind of the that's really what this case boils down to to me is it could go either way yeah it's one of those things that I don't think it really is all a straight line it's not black or white it's not black and white it's just what did that New York Times reporter say that you said that you, I think we both kind of agreed. I, I really liked, I, I found it interesting because I expected the reporter that she was meeting with, I expected everything he would have to say about the case would be biased toward her side just because he was wanting to represent this story. But, you know, I mean, he even said he didn't think she was murdered. He thinks it was a case of somebody wanted to scare her and it got out, you know, it, it, it was an accident and then it was like, oh my God, what do we do now? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I can so I can see, that, see that happening. I mean, when it comes down to it, I think it, it has, I, I think that possibly things weren't as, as, uh, the uh, the Kermagee company was not being as diligent as they could have been over safety mm. things, probably. But on the other hand, 
I see a young woman who's very ambitious and she's got a, a toehold in with, you know, mm-hmm. an organization and she's thinking she really wants to make something happen. And from some of those things, like the ingestion of plutonium and everything, I mean, it it really... It's kind of like it, it's kind of it, like one of those situations where even if she's right that they're doing things wrong, she shouldn't have ingested the plutonium to make her point. Right. Like it, kinda, if that's what happened. If that's what happened. And it certainly seems like maybe, mm-hmm. you know, seems she, likely. I think maybe maybe the plant might have skirted some issues Mm -hmm. and she might have skirted some issues and then when it came down to the actual car accident you know no i don't believe that the head of kermagee said let's kill this woman yeah i don't believe that for a minute i think what the New York Times reporter said was a far more likely scenario. Like, let's scare her. I think that, who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe it could have been someone who was a superior to her at the plant. It could have been co-workers. It could have been anything. But it kind of seems like it was a matter of, we're going to scare her to death. And they didn't know that it was going to be literal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know? I think you're right. And that's a quotable quote. We're going to scare her. And what did you say? We're going to scare her to death. They didn't know it would be literal. Yes, I like that. That's a quotable quote right there. At any rate, you know, I think it's an extremely unfortunate episode in the history of Oklahoma. (laughs) Definitely. Well, thank you for joining me to discuss it. I had a lot of fun. Well, I enjoyed being your guest. and and, uh, Hope you'll come back. Uh, I appreciate you asking. I like that. Everybody seemed to enjoy the episode about women on death row. So if you haven't heard that one and you like hearing me and my mom talk, then go check out that one because she was on there with me. And she she does really good research. She's she's on the ball with the research. So I appreciate that. But anyway, um, I don't think I have very many announcements other than there's a Facebook group and several of you have joined it and it makes me really excited and happy because we're going to try to get something going with that. Like um, Marissa and I had talked about maybe some meetups at some point, like maybe all of us going somewhere spooky and doing something together. So that's kind of um, in the works and um, follow the podcast on Instagram at Irioki. Facebook is the same. If you have a burning question or a desire to contact me, um, send me a message on Instagram or send me an email at iriokipodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to follow me for my writing posts, like I, I don't think I've really said much about that on here, but I am a novelist. And so if you want to follow me and see what I'm doing in my writing life, which is my day-to-day life pretty much, um, follow me on Instagram at MNVinge. So um, that's about all I have for you guys. So thanks for being here, Mom. Thanks for having me. All right. Y'all stay spooky.